Please remain standing for the reading of God's word. Our scripture reading is from uh, the epistle of 1 John, chapter 2, uh, verses 15 through 17. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. I would like to open us in prayer before we get into it. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to gather in your presence without fear of persecution, Lord, to hear your word preached, partake of the sacraments, to confess our sins humbly before you. Uh, We pray that you would be with us now, give us ears to hear what your spirit says to the church, and let the words of my mouth and meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. So it's a pleasure to be here with you guys again. And uh, I want to thank you guys for having me. Uh, we're going to continue uh, in First John, like, like I said. As you see, we've got a super long passage we're going through today. <laughs> but I promise you it's meaty. So um, let's get into it. Uh, The last time that we were together, we went over the direct proclamation toward all the people in the congregation that John was writing to. He declared to them that their sins are forgiven. He declared to the fathers that they have known Christ who is from the beginning. The young men, they are told they are strong and have overcome the wicked one. And the word of God abides in them. These are all beautiful declarations, and they are ones of promise. Remember, we talked about the already and not yet aspect to all these promises. uh, That they have overcome the wicked one, yet we still live in a sinful and fallen world. And we still struggle with sins from time to time. There are times in which it doesn't feel like we have overcome the wicked one. Uh, This is all a picture of our sanctification, We Christians have the Spirit of God in us, but we also still have our flesh, and sometimes our flesh is loud. We need to be reminded of our position in Christ and cling to His promises and the reality of our being in Him and how with Him we are more than conquerors. Now, one characteristic of John, which you probably have picked up on through us going through this letter, It's also prevalent in John's gospel is that of dualism. He is frequently posing ideas and contraries, uh, the light and the dark, the truth and the lie, righteousness and unrighteousness, the old commandment, the new commandment, walking, stumbling, the word abiding in us and the word not in us, sin and no sin, those who are of us, those who are not of us, and so on. And here we come to our text for today, which is another contrast. We have those who love the world and those with the love of the Father, that which is passing away and that which abides forever. 
So um, for those of you who are taking notes, our first point uh, in our outline is going to just be simply the world. We're going to look at what the world is. It says in verse 15, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. Now the world here isn't referring to the world around us, the natural world. This is what some people take this to mean. God created the world, and he called it good in creation. Uh, so maybe not literally that people take it to mean the world around them, but they see the corruption all around us, and they think that they can escape it. They think that everything around them is what is bad. Uh, if they could only escape to some desert, to some monastery, to a cave somewhere, then they wouldn't have all these temptations follow them there. Some even do go. They escape society altogether or form their own small one. And they soon find out that the corruption and the temptations are still in their minds and in their hearts. Whatever they seek to create by their own power by fleeing uh, is corrupted by their own sinful desires. Some of the monastics realized this. Uh, they fled society to be free of the corruption and temptation only to find out that they still had this corrupt mind. Yes, society is corrupt, absolutely. This is because society is made up of men and women, and we all have a fallen nature. We're all sinners. The world here is the corruption of the fall. It is anything that is contrary to God's will. Now, uh, the world can also refer to world systems. This, obviously, was written directly to the church John was writing to. But the word of God applies to all Christians over all times and in all places. So while in John's immediate context, it would have been referring to the practices that were prominent in the Greco-Roman world as well as the Jewish world, their culture, their context, it would have certainly been applicable to the man-made traditions and practices of the Judaizers. It would have also been applicable to the common cultural practices of the pagans. Now remember, it's likely John was writing this from Ephesus, which was in Asia Minor, and it was under the control of the Roman Empire. So the temptation of the indulgent pagan practices of cultic prostitution and everything else would have also been part of the immediate world system that was surrounding them. Politics and philosophies also fall under this concept of world. Not that all politics and philosophies are bad. Those that go against the will of God are bad. Things that are diametrically opposed to a Christian worldview falls under world. This includes materialism, Darwinism, Gnosticism, atheism, all those ugly isms. Now, the world system of the atheists you know, can't account for anything. It raises more questions than answers. Atheists often will raise the problem of evil to try to counteract Christianity. But evil is actually much more of a problem for the atheist. For Christians, we have hope in the fact that we have a just God. And he will have justice be done. Uh, it may be in eternity after the judgment, but there is justice nonetheless. In the world system, there is only earthly justice 
that is enacted by sinful, flawed men based on a wishy-washy, subjective laws that change based on whoever's in power and deems that they deem to be virtuous. Now, our world system today, our Western collectivist mind, has a disordered love as its foundation. Uh, our system has sought for years to remove God, his law, his morality, his word, his standard, any semblance from, of him from every institution. And they have almost succeeded. These things are even being removed from the institutional church. The mainline denominations have gone by the way of the world. And the same mindset is even seeping into the more traditionally conservative churches under the guise of niceness. Now John here is defining world or what is in the world as lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And if we love these things, then the love of the Father is not in us. So to understand all that this entails, we're going to take a closer look at what these three things are. Which brings us to our second point. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Here we are presented with two paths, two choices. There's always two. This is that dualism we're talking about. There's the narrow path, and there's the wide one. We are either of God or of Satan. We can serve ourselves or we can die to ourselves. This harkens back to the garden. Adam was given a choice. The right choice was to enjoy life in God's present and tend to the garden and protect it and his bride Eve. The wrong choice was the one that he chose, which was to ultimately skirt his role as protector and head and follow his bride. This all stemmed from a disordered love. He loved the things of the world. In this case, his disordered love was that he loved Eve more than God in that moment because he allowed her to eat the fruit that he was commanded not to eat. He took and also ate. We know this is a disordering of loves because it was him giving in to the desire of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. The same three things that John lists here is contrary to a properly ordered love of the Father. These were all present in Adam on that fateful, fateful day in the garden. He saw that the tree was good for food, so they desired to taste it. They heeded the words of the dragon, that it was good to make one wise. That's the pride of life. They took from that tree on their own time, not on God's. They sought the glory to be like God. We know that there's nothing new under the sun. The same temptations that shipwrecked Adam and Eve in the garden on that day are the same temptations that we face today when we get down to the root of it. It all stems from a disordering of love. Now here's where it can get tricky. Anything good in God's created order can be considered worldly if it is a disordered love. If it captures our affection over God, it is worldly and we are seeking to serve ourselves. It falls into the three that are mentioned here, lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. Disordered loves, it's the root of serving the wrong master. We're all slaves to something or to someone. We are to be slaves to Christ and die to ourself, not slaves to our flesh and our desires. Anything that takes precedent or priority in our hearts and minds over God 
is a disordered love. Jesus says no one can serve two masters. You cannot serve God and mammon. It's a disordering of love because it elevates the emotions of sinful man, the creature, in place of the importance of the creator, God. It supplants the good, the true, and beautiful with evil, lies, and ugliness. Meanwhile, those given to their sinful desires will eventually celebrate with pride the destruction of the image of God in man in the name of love. We see this everywhere around us today. This was always Satan's plan. He entices us to put ourselves in the place of God. When we do this, we drift further from our function as image bearers. We begin to call evil good and good evil. We begin to image the beast rather than imaging God. We can get an example of those who image the beast. Uh, if you look at Second Peter 2, now the context in Second Peter 2 is really about false teachers. And we know that James 3, 1 says, My brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment, for we all stumble in many things. This is true, we all stumble. But just because teachers are held to a stricter judgment doesn't mean that those who aren't teachers and do these things escape judgment. So now in Second Peter, you could turn there if you'd like, um, Peter is explaining how God rewards the righteous and punishes the wicked. He's talking about God's justice. We're going to pick up in verse 9. Then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment and especially those who walk according to the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise authority. They are presumptuous, self-willed. They are not afraid to speak evil of dignitaries, whereas angels who are greater in power and might do not bring a reviling accusation against them before the Lord. But these, like natural brute beasts made to be caught and destroyed, speak evil of the things they do not understand and will utterly perish in their own corruption." And will receive the wages of unrighteousness as those who count it pleasure to carouse in the daytime. They are spots and blemishes, carousing in their own deceptions while they feast with you, having eyes full of adultery that cannot cease from sin, enticing unstable souls. They have a heart trained in covetous practices and are accursed children. Verse 12 there says that these are like natural brute beasts made to be caught and destroyed. Those who walk according to the flesh in the lust of uncleanness. In verse 14 it says they have eyes full of adultery and cannot cease from sin. They have a heart trained in covetous practices. Here we have the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Those that do not exercise self-control train their hearts in covetous practices. They have made it a practice to quench the spirit and then are given over to their own sin. They begin to image the beast. I want to give a more precise definition of these three things, but instead of leaning on my own understanding, I'm going to give you the words of Matthew Henry from his commentary. He says, first, there is the lust of the flesh. The flesh here being distinguished from the eyes and the life imports the body. 
The lust of the flesh is subjectively the humor and appetite of indulging fleshly pleasures and objectively all those things that excite and inflame the pleasures of the flesh. This lust is usually called luxury. Second, the lust of the eyes. The eyes are delighted with treasures, riches, and rich possessions are craved by an extravagant eye. This is the lust of covetousness. Third, the pride of life. A vain mind craves all the grandeur, equipage, and pomp of a vain, glorious life. This is ambition and thirst after honor and applause. This is, in part, the disease of the ear. It must be flattered with admiration and praise. The object of these appetites must be abandoned and renounced as they engage and engross the affection and desire. They are not of the Father, but of the world. So the lust of the flesh deals with our bodies. The lust of the eyes deals with covetousness, and the pride of life is seeking after praise and adoration from man. I had mentioned these things are a disordering of loves, and that it originated in the garden. It is also common to man in general. But where else do we see these three types of temptation? I want you all to turn with me now to Matthew chapter 4. This chapter, Matthew chapter 4, uh, takes place right after Jesus' baptism. And he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness as he fasted for 40 days and was tempted by Satan. I'm going to start in verse 1. <clears throat> then Jesus was led up to the, by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, afterward he was hungry now when the tempter came to him, he said, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him up into the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He shall give his angels charge over you. And in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, It is written again, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. Again the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain, and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And he said to him, All these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and ministered to him. The first temptation there was that he turned the stones into bread. Satan appealed to Jesus' hunger. This was an attempt to play on the lust of the flesh, because it was concerning a bodily desire. The second temptation, that he throw himself down if he is the Son of God, because the angels wouldn't allow him to be hurt. This was appealing to the pride of life, it would be the sin of presumption, grandeur. And the third was that he bow down and worship Satan and that he'd give him all the kingdoms of the world. This applies to the lust of the eyes, covetousness. Jesus was tempted like Adam was, but Jesus did not give in. Jesus did not sin. Satan comes to us as the voice in our head Sometimes that urges us to act on our base desires and temptations. And that voice sounds a lot like our own. 
Satan's game is always the same. He did the same to Adam. He did it to Jesus. And due to our sin nature, he does it to us. And how did Jesus respond to these temptations? Jesus responded with the word of God. This brings us to my third point, the application. What does this mean for us? Here's an application. The last time I was with you, I mentioned the importance of our spiritual disciplines. We have to remember the signs. We need to make ourselves so familiar with the word of God that it's our natural response when faced with adversity or trials or temptations. We can't go into battle against darkness, whether internal or external, without the light in our hearts and in our minds. Psalm 119.105 says, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. When we are tempted, it is a temptation because it is our desire. It wouldn't be a temptation if we didn't desire it. I said that it is Satan that tempts us, but it's figuratively speaking here. I'm not negating the supernatural nor the personhood of Satan. But to make the point, Hasetan in the Hebrew means the adversary. When sin entered the world, that adversarial spirit, which we could call the flesh or our sinful nature, became a part of humanity. I had mentioned before that there is this duality. The same is true in man. We are either in the spirit or we are in the flesh. Let's take a look at Galatians 5 at what the Apostle Paul says about the lust of the flesh and how it contrasts against walking in the spirit. He poses here a dualism that's very similar to John. And interestingly enough, we know it's likely that John and Paul spent time together when Paul was in Ephesus. And so if you look at Galatians chapter 5, verses 16, I say then, walk in the spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another so that you do not do the things that you wish. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like of which I tell you beforehand, just as I told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit, the contrary here, is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. And those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. While we are being sanctified, and while we struggle and stumble and overcome, there are times when we are more in line with the Spirit and the will of God and other times when we are more in line with the flesh and giving into temptation. There are times when children of God begin to resemble Satan. That is why in one moment Peter was confessing to Jesus that 
You are the Messiah, the Son of God. And a very short while after is being rebuked by Jesus and told, get behind me, Satan. Anytime we are not in line with God's will, we are acting as the adversary, as Satan. This is why it's important to be in the word and practicing our spiritual disciplines. The more that we surround ourselves with light, the more we will radiate. There is great reward for the child of God who perseveres and doesn't give in to the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, or the pride of life. And this doesn't mean that if you fail this at times, you're kicked out of the kingdom. John already went through earlier on the process of repentance and forgiveness. This just means we need to be actively fighting the spiritual battle and clinging to Christ's promises as these temptations arise. In James chapter 1, verses 12 through 15, the Apostle James says, Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when the desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Do not make a practice of giving in to your desires. Do not go the way of the darkness. The more that you give in to your desires and your temptations, the more you begin to quench the spirit of God in you. Do not let the flesh win. Do not continue to give in to your sin and allow yourself to be given over. God gives us what we want. If we truly love him and want to be with him, we will seek him diligently and abide in his word. If we have disordered loves and things are taking priority over God, then we are idolatrous. Our love for that thing is disordered and therefore sinful. The more we put God on the back burner for our own selfish desires and sin, the more he will withdraw his hand and give us what we truly want. In 1 Corinthians 5, Paul is rebuking the church in Corinth for permitting a man that is in an incestuous relationship with his father's wife uh, because they were allowing him to remain in the congregation. This man was an unrepentant sinner. And in the manner of church discipline, the final step is excommunication. Paul explains in verse 5, Deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. The man is removed from the body of Christ, and he's given over to Satan. At this point, he is considered an unbeliever and has been given over to his sin. At this point, the man will indulge his flesh until he has a dark night of the soul in which he can come back under the conviction of the Holy Spirit, or he will continue in his in his sin until he dies in his sins. The goal, of course, was for reconciliation and to purge the leaven from the church for its peace and its purity. But ultimately, what is happening is he's given over to his sin because he chose his sin over God. Now, spoiler alert, the man in question at Corinth did repent, and in 2 Corinthians 2, Paul tells them to receive him back and forgive him. Now, reconciliation does happen, and it is beautiful. It's the goal. But sometimes it doesn't. An individual given to much temptation who is not equipped for spiritual battle with the word of God and the promises of the sacraments and the fellowship of the saints can quench the spirit so hard that all he or she hears is the loudness of their own wicked desires and begins to call them good. 
Do not let this be you. Back to our passage for today. In verse 17, it says, And the world is passing away, and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. Our temptations are fleeting. All the sinful desires, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, they're all going away. God is restoring all things. All of creation will be restored, and these things will be no more. There is only one way to eternal life, and that is in Christ Jesus. If you want eternal life in the new creation, in the presence of our Lord, then he is what you must cling to. All that is true and good and beautiful is in him. Everything else is temporary. We must have our loves properly ordered according to God's will. So what is the will of God? I'm glad you asked. <laughs> Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4, 3, For this is the will of God, your sanctification. This whole discussion about not loving the world is about having our priorities right. It's about our sanctification. Our sanctification, according to the Westminster Shorter Catechism, and I know you guys are going through it, <laughs> is the work of God's free grace, whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die unto sin and live unto righteousness. This is not instantaneous. No one, not everyone matures spiritually at the same pace. This is what that last section in John's letter was talking about. We're all at different places in our spiritual walk. Some mature quickly and some stumble along. Some should be on solid meat by now but are still like nursing infants. But we are in a path of progression unto righteousness, being conformed to the true image of Jesus Christ. I want to read another passage from James before we end. This again is from James 1, starting in verse 21. There's been a lot of references to James today, huh? In the confession, that was great. Um, Therefore lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word, and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. For he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it, and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. Now if anyone among you thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this one's religion is useless. Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. Lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness, because these are the things spotted by the world. Our sins, our fleshly, worldly desires that are perishing and have no part with God. Receive the implanted word which is able to save your souls. You need the word implanted in you. If you are actively doing what is in the word of God and not just hearing it, then you are living it, and then the word makes its home in you. This is your guard from temptation. Just like Jesus out there in the wilderness we need to have God's word implanted in us and we need to live it. It needs to be real to us. 
if you think you're religious and do not bridle your tongue, but deceive your own heart. This means those who say they are a Christian, but is in word only. Faith without works is dead, James goes on to say. Just saying that we believe in God and that we're a Christian means very little if we're not living it. And it certainly is not a protection from your own flesh. In closing, know the word. Live the word. Make it real for you. Have it implanted in you. Seek after God over everything else. Because everything else is fleeting and passing away and temporary. God is not. Flee from temptation. Resist the devil both internally and externally. And he will flee from you. God has given you promises and signs of his promises. Remain diligent and do not get complacent in your spiritual battle. But cast your cares unto Jesus. He said, after all, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you are so gracious and merciful to us sinners, that you see the desires of our heart and the thoughts of our mind and our deeds that we do every day. Everything is revealed before you, and yet you are still merciful to us to forgive us our sins for the sake of Jesus Christ. We ask now, Lord, humbly that you would continue to renew us and give us an abundance of your spirit to help us to die unto sin and to live unto righteousness. Help us to put our love for you above all other things, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen.